Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food. Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Hi, I'm Alex Merrill. Welcome to the Inspirati. I've enlisted a roster of ultra-talented international creators and curators to join me on this podcast to talk about how they've charted their individual paths, overcome challenges, and found their true artistic selves. From candid conversations with eminent makers to showcasing exciting up-and-comers across the industries of art, music, fashion, entertainment, literature, and design, we get to illuminate our perspectives, learning from these unique stars within the constellation of global creation. The Inspirati was created for those seeking inspiration and those seeking to inspire. Thanks for listening. I haven't had a boss in 14 years, but if you told me I needed to choose one today, I would leap up to go work for Richard Christensen, a true legend amongst creative directors. Growing up in the Australian outback where make-believe was not only a way of life, but a means for survival, set up a desire in him to make a world out of building worlds. And in the process, he made a brand out of building brands. His creative agency, Chandelier, has crafted stories, reimagined identities, and conceived campaigns for companies like Givenchy, Virgin, Calvin Klein, Cartier, Bergdorf Goodman, Club Monaco, Nordstrom, and Rock Nation. The originality in Chandelier's work speaks to its founder's unbridled imagination, a talent honed by seeing and experiencing so much from the North Pole to the South Pole. Seriously, he's walked to both. But when one week you're spontaneously setting up an office in Hong Kong and the next you're creating kaleidoscopic visuals for Kylie Minogue's stadium tour, what do you construct as your magnum opus? The answer, it turned out, was surprisingly simple build a home. And so after decades of bringing beauty into the world for others, Richard embarked on his most personal project to date, the restoration and reimagining of seven acres in the hills of Los Angeles, including a 1940s Spanish colonial style house. The property became Flamingo Estate, Richard's home, a sanctuary for his creative community and a garden of earthly delights, housing more than 150 new botanical species, including a bountiful orchard. When a friend in farming was hit hard by the pandemic, Richard saw this as a call to action and launched Flamingo's Produce Boxes, serving the LA community beautiful fruits and vegetables weekly via a fleet of 35 trucks. This led to an ever-expanding line of fine foods, body products, and candles, allowing Richard to support both local out-of-work growers and his loyal team. We talked about the importance of fantasy, why pleasure is a human right, and how sometimes you need to burn down the barn to see the moon. I hope our conversation ignites your imagination, but please don't tell his mom about it. You'll hear why. (laughs) 
Well, I saw you interview Luke Edward Hall, who was actually our episode four guest at his book launch in New York. But I've been following Chandelier for years and your creative perspective is so unique and joyful and refreshing in what at this point is a very cluttered landscape. So first of all, thank you for all you create and all that originality that you bring. Well, that's so generous of you. Thank you. That's so, so, so sweet of you. And uh, not sure it's all accurate, but that's lovely. You and my mother, as I said, you and my mother say nice things. I'm glad we've got that in common. Well, the title of creative director is obviously thrown around a lot now in more diluted context. But if you were to describe what you do to someone without Instagram, like over the age of 80, what would you say? We solve problems. Mm. Yeah, we solve problems and we build worlds. I think that's my favorite. World building is my favorite term. Yeah. And yeah. That's that's what I would say. And if you explained that to yourself as a child, how do you think that he'd take that for his future? Oh, I think it's exactly where I wanted to end up as a kid. Yeah. You know, I had a really untraditional childhood. I grew up on a very, very remote farm in, uh, in rural Australia and had amazing parents who were farmers. And, you know, there was a drought in Australia and the farming sector sort of fell apart and they like most of the farmers in our area, made money from bringing busloads of Japanese and Chinese tourists to the farm for sort of an outback experience. So my parent, my mom built a steam train and my dad, I mean, he had a fake Aboriginal tribe. He, uh, very inappropriate to date. My brother and I used to shear sheep. We used to tie cabbage patch dolls to the back of sheep so that they could race around a track so that the tourists could, could bet money on them. So it was, you know, and this went on for years, my, you know, really my entire second half of my childhood. And so in many ways, my mom and dad were so creative and we sort of had this you know this kind of like jazz hands build a story world all the time just because we were trying to save our farm Mm -hmm. and build this like crazy outback world and and razzle dazzle you know so you know I never went to art school I never went to creative anything school but I think I spent all of my formative years playing make-believe and pretend with my parents to save our house and you know, I never really knew what I wanted to do as a child. And I never really had a, you know, there's that expression, you can't, you can't dream it unless you can see it. I didn't really, hadn't really seen it because I didn't have anyone I knew in that world, in this world, but I knew what I wanted to feel like, which was going to work every day and creating that kind of make-believe, which obviously becomes advertising and, and other things adjacent to that art direction and all the, and photography and all that sort of stuff. So, so I'm so lucky to have that childhood. Oh my God. Do you remember having any specific access points to culture, international culture at that point through magazines? Or did you have that fascination where you were seeking that out at that point? Yeah, I had my mom, you know, we were very remote. My mom used to get like once a month, we'd get international magazines like World of Interiors and international editions of Vogue and stuff like that. So from afar, you know, living in this very rural setting, getting this like package of joy from across the world, which I thought was so glamorous. and. Uh, you know, and then like we obviously, I think at that time, Australia had four TV stations or something, five TV stations. But later as we got older, like I remember watching Dynasty and just thinking like, oh, my God, that's what America like. I've got to go to America, which was the furthest away from where we were. You know, we were living in this farm in the middle of 
you know, in the middle of the country. So, and now I think you're sitting underneath like a portrait of Jane Fonda. So it all kind of fits. <laughs> I am. It's true. It kind of came all full circle. But you know, I think there was that. Like, I think there's this other thing about Australia, which I come to really appreciate, is that there is this like blue sky optimism. There's this like idea of a boundless sort of. I don't know, it's a, such a huge country and it's so far to get to that that idea of jumping on a plane to go somewhere for 24 hours is not, it's not weird, you know? It's not this idea of like, distance, is, I think, becomes shorter there mm-hmm. to a certain extent. And I think that idea of that everyone's your mate and glasses half full, like, I do think that that's true. And I'm really grateful that I was born there and I grew up there. And I love that country so much. It's such a special place. I almost, I fell in love with Margaret River when I was 16 mm. and almost oh, went to college in Perth of all places what? which is like the most remote place in the world but my my dad was working with horses and we went to Margaret River and I just remember falling in love with that country and feeling very much at home there it's a really special place that's amazing Margaret River is a beautiful place yeah I'm glad that you know it I feel like so many of my friends from Australia especially from Sydney have never been well, you know, again, yeah, because it's like the other side. It's easier to go to Los Angeles than it is to go to yeah. Western Australia or Southern Australia, you know. So, yeah, but no, it's beautiful. Great place to grow up. So did you have that like slew of service industry jobs up first that made you never want to boss again? Or like, how did you come around to wanting to be in magazines and be in a creative thing? I was des- just desperate to get out of Australia as a young kid, as most Australian kids are, and to a certain extent, not that's not true, not all of them, but I think there's this idea of you finish school and you go see the world. Yeah. And because we don't really, at that time at least, there was no such thing as student debt in Australia that you were sort of untethered and you could go and take risks and go travel, which was why so many uh, young Australians travel for a year after school. So anyway, went to London. I went to law school in London and ended up, you know, broke in London. And I look back at this and I just think, what a wild time. I'm not not even 20 years old. I'm living in London. And I was working as, well, I guess my mom's not going to hear this. I, I would, I tell people I was working as a barman, which I was, but I was also kind of dancing on a bar in my underwear. Excellent. Um, And so (laughs) I spent I'm working in these like kind of seedy London bars, kind of sort of as a go-go boy and a barman serving beers to people. And more razzle dazzle. Yeah. And like painfully shy, you know, I'd never, I never even kissed anyone. And I'm sort of like working, you know, stripping at a bar, if you will. But what I did learn in that job, which I love, was we used to work in this huge club and would have to and hundreds and hundreds of people every night and I would I would always remember someone's name and I always knew how to get a tip by being nice to people and deal with assholes and all that stuff and it's probably not that far off from advertising well no it's a funny thing you say that because the the moment that changed my life one of them was that someone came in and said you're really good with the story you always remember a joke and you're great at dealing with assholes you should work in advertising and that person was he was a very well-known British advertising figure and he took me under his wing and I got a job in his company and that was one of the uh the turning points of of my career and so here I was fresh out of law school working as a creative in an ad agency and I'd never I didn't even know really what that meant but I worked really 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 hard because I knew I didn't know and just tirelessly hard I also wanted to stay in Europe and I didn't have a visa and we were on a job in Italy and someone had mentioned Benetton to me and I ended up 
meeting the people that got a job there and eventually running their magazine Colors, which was at the time wildly controversial and um, a really wildly creative place to be. And in the Italian countryside, you know, working there. So another, you know, from one rural hotspot to another. And then that was really sort of like working under Oliviero Toscani, who was running the, the creative there and, and he was doing all that Benetton advertising, which at the time was so controversial. That really taught me so much. And he was a, he taught me a lot about being a, a boss and about, I don't know, just sort of stepping into your own skin. He'd always say that, you know, he would give people jobs that they were maybe underqualified for because it meant they'd have to buy off more than they can chew and they'd learn mm. how to do it and sink and swim kind of thing. So, which is a hundred percent what happened, you know? So really like at that point, mid twenties, maybe mid to late twenties, just like, Oh wow. Running a magazine. I've never been to art school. I don't even know how to use what was it then Quark Express or, or whatever we were using to design things. So, you know, but what a wild adventure. So interesting. Yeah. yeah. And really just like so grateful for that. Those those few coincidences that you go through that really change your life. And then how did you end up coming to the States? Again, kind of a lucky coincidence. I was, Oliviero was, had asked me to give a speech for him. He was sick about colors in Sweden. And I went there. I also like ever since I was a kid, since my mom was getting World of Interiors, I just read every magazine. I was obsessed with magazines. And I went to this conference and I sat next to this. I gave a speech, was very nervous. I'd never spoken in front of that many people. I was so shy and a bit of a bookworm, I guess, at the time and um, or magazine worm. Anyway, I sat next to this guy and his name, well, he, I didn't know his name. He said, oh, you know, what do you think of magazines? And I said, I think there's no good magazines for, for people. I'm interested in activism. I'm interested in um, design. I'm, I'm not interested in celebrity culture. There's a war going on in Kosovo. There's, it was sort of so much going on in the world. And I said, I feel like there should be a magazine that's sort of equal parts, like old Playboy um, meets National Geographic you know, meets Oprah or something like that. And uh, anyway, maybe a little arrogant. I don't know. We had this long conversation with this man. And then I went back to Italy and I realized afterwards, he called me that the man I was sitting next to was called Johan Bonnier. He was, uh, I guess, a Rupert Murdoch-esque figure in in Scandinavia. And uh, he said, if you, if you feel like that's the sort of magazine that you could create, maybe you should come here and do it for us. And so wow. I moved to Sweden in the middle of winter to start a magazine. And then that that took me to New York, where uh, the hope was it would get published. And an American publisher, Hearst, was potentially going to think about working with us. But that didn't happen. And I got to New York for the first time. I was so excited to be there. And um, How old were you? Mid, yeah, mid to late 20s. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, probably like 20, 26 or 27. Yeah, here I am in New York and, and broke again. And, you know, like, what are we going to do? So then I just kind of started up up again in New York. I didn't have a visa again. I feel like the immigrant <laughs> problem has haunted my career. I didn't have a visa, but I have an identical twin brother. So I would leave the country and I'd come back as him. And then I'd come back as me and I'd come back as him and I'd come back as me. And so I was just trying endlessly to stay uh, in, in New York. And obviously, what a dream, you know, being, again, being like 20-something in New York, trying to create yourself. And, you know, just, I, li- I mean, back to that, spirit of my parents kind of a little bit just like hustling through you know just doing everything I could to try to get some traction and eventually I did and eventually I started um, my own agency after working in some other places so yeah it was so wild I heard that you after Time Inc which I believe you were at for a bit you you basically sold your apartment to pay people to come work with you and start an agency is that right 
Yeah, so I got a job in uh, Atomic and had an amazing, amazing team there. And we were working on a magazine called Suede. And I loved the team. And I, they had some of those people had followed me around from my, my days in Sweden. And I had built a really beautiful group of friends and loved them as friends and colleagues. And so then Timing said, and that was kind of my real first proper job. You know, I worked in a big office with a proper salary and I got a visa and all that stuff. And then um, I had bought an apartment in New York, a little apartment. And then, um, yeah, they said they're closing the magazine. I said, okay, I went downstairs to the art department and I said, I will sell my apartment. I will match your salaries. Let's start an agency together. And the truth is like, we, we had spent so long complaining about the advertising in the magazine. I used to go to the ad sales meetings because I didn't like the advertising people at Time Inc. And also like who can talk better about selling something than the person that makes it right. So I'm the creative director. I know exactly what's in it. I'm, I love it. And I think that's the time when I, when I started having to defend our work and talk about it, it was really the time I sort of stopped being shy and got much more confident about that stuff. So I was just like going with these ad sales people to all these meetings endlessly and, uh, used to get really disappointed by the bad ads that they would give us. So I thought, well, this, how, how hard can this possibly be? Let's go start an agency. And so we did with that original team from the magazine, we moved into my apartment and we all worked in the kitchen table <laughs> and like really quickly ran out of money. And we, in the ad sales meetings, I had met one, maybe the creative director or the head of marketing from uh, Nordstrom, who was our very first proper like potential job and she said it was just to design their catalogs or something and she said well I'll never forget it because we're really like we were down to our really down to our lost lost amount of money and she said well I'll give you I'll give you guys the job you guys can do it and at the time it was all the money in the world I couldn't believe how lucky we were and uh she said but I need to come to New York with the team we want to meet the team and we want to see your office your kitchen table like fuck we don't have an office like <laughs> so across the street from my apartment there was an empty office space and we rented that office and then I went to there was a flea market in Chelsea which is where I used to live and we went as a group on a Saturday and bought all these dining room tables and then we spray painted them black so they matched and then went to TechServe which used to be on 23rd street and rented computers and then got on Craigslist and rented some fake staff and had all these people there that we didn't know typing on computers that didn't <laughs> because there wasn't enough electricity out there all the screens are facing the wall and people were just typing anyway they came in and they kind of they they fell for it I guess and and you know we got the job and uh, my cleaner at the time uh, was outside in the hallway on her cell phone just dialing the the one working telephone in the office repeatedly <laughs> it looked like we were busy but anyway so then that became our first office and then you know and then onward and upwards we went from there Crazy. Incredible. What a gamble. A little bit, but you know, like I'm not yes, but also no, like really just like, what's the other choice, right? Yeah. Fast running out of money and- um, Leap in the net will appear. Uh, my favorite expression, leap in the net will appear. Also, Really? Yeah, I also feel like someone said this to me last night. Uh, one of my colleagues said that comfort makes you lazy and, mm. uh, you know, innovation is born out of discomfort. And I think that looking back on those years, that's all very true, you know? really like had no advantage we had no connections we had no upper hand in any way and um but you know just just kept on moving which is important i know that feeling when you're coming up with creative concepts and brand identities for others all the time having to come up with one for yourself to name mm -hmm. your thing it's it's a bit of a weird process how did you come up with chandelier 
The very worst name. I would never recommend it. <laughs> the magazine we worked at previously, Time Inc., uh, I spent all of the like, I don't know, like the whole year's budget in the first issue. And the accounting people at Time Inc. really hated me. And I'd march up to the, the floor of the accounting team and with my big stack of receipts from the issue, from all the photographers and everything. And there was this one person and she name was Sheila and she I remember walking up there and she's like, here he is. She's like, you know, you're so outrageous, Richard. You would, if you had to do a story about a football player, you'd find a way to rent a chandelier to put in there. And <laughs> that, that became this derogatory term. She's like, here's the chandelier guy. Here's the chandelier guy. And then here's the chandelier people. And this idea of like, I guess a chandelier became like this, this um, shorthand for, you know, the most extravagant thing you could rent on a photo shoot from a prop house. Right. So then when we, when the magazine closed and when I took the stuff aside, I said, you know, what should we call ourselves? You know, I don't really want to call it my name. I, I, it's about all of us. And um, one of my colleagues, she said, oh, why don't we call it Chandelier? That's what they've called us, the Chandelier people for so long. So I was like, that's perfect. And that's what we've become. And over the years, like I spun that in different ways and said like, oh, it's about bright sparks and bright lights and a collection of different people together. But honestly, the truth is it was because of Sheila. <laughs> On the accounting for climate. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Timing, for that. It's a silly name though. And now I'm just like, people used to call the office constantly looking for lighting. And I- no. You get so jealous of like people like Trey Laird and Littman and Lloyd and all those people whose surname was their business name. And I was like, ah, oh, it'd be so much easier if it was that. But anyway. If people weren't calling a lighting emporium. <laughs> <laughs> Have you had any calling cards or did you in the early days as far as creative elements go that you felt were specifically identifiable as Chandelier? Or did you do any little like repeat things with clients where you kind of had a little calling card there? No, I mean, I don't know if this is the answer, but we, I really quickly realized that we were never going to get clients by emailing or calling. I was also like doing that myself and I'm not good at that stuff, at cold calling people. So I wanted to send them something too big for them to throw away. So we started making these giant, very expensive pizza boxes uh, like these huge boxes that were, were like pizza, much bigger than pizza boxes, actually, <laughs> like a newspaper size hardcover box with a big ribbon that looked and felt very expensive and were just too big to throw away. And <laughs> they'd sit on people's desks or on their floors. And what we inevitably found was like over time, someone would come in and say like, oh, what's that on the floor? And they say, oh, it's from the set agency. And this was one of the best things we ever did. That's the reason we almost ran out of money in the beginning because we made them, but it was just a simple idea. Sometimes you need to throw a brick at people for them to notice you. And so um, really just over-indexed on that and invested very heavily in it and then started doing one every year, sometimes twice a year. And that became that became something that we, uh, we got better at and we got more... Um, visibility for I guess especially as the world started to go more digital this mm -hmm. is a giant analog thing that people would get and uh it was great to do we haven't done it in a couple of years we got so much pushback last time we did it because environmentally it's not very responsible and right. I also think we're probably now at a point where we don't need to do it but it was a great tool in getting the plane off the ground yeah was there was there anything in it oh yeah it was filled with work oh <laughs> Okay. No, no, of course. Yeah, yeah it, was like, it was like it was like it was like. Was there a pizza? <laughs> no, no, no. It was the stuff we've been doing for the last year, and uh, cool. we we would send that out. Portfolio. Yeah, it was like a big portfolio, but beautifully done. I think the execution of it was really, really nice, and 
it's something we're we're all so proud of. So I'm also just like so grateful. I think about that now. So many people have touched those boxes and been part of it and been part of that story and the dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people that have that I've been lucky enough to work with during that journey. I'm so grateful to all of them. It was such, it has been such a wild ride. Yeah. Another uh, past guest of ours, who I know you know, Marie-Louise Show mm-hmm. Master Hotelier, she was talking about creating emotion and how much people want to be touched when it comes to, to hospitality. How do you feel that holds truth in the ad market? Well, I don't know how it feels for others, but certainly for us in New York, we were the first office in New York and then in the other offices where we opened in different places. It was very, I mean, you've been to our office. It was very much about, mm-hmm. um, for me about hospitality in that sense as well. I remember being on a Virgin project and they were talking about the design of the Virgin Atlantic clubhouse, you know, the airline lounge and how from the front door of the clubhouse, you could always see a bar, no matter where you were standing, you could, your line of sight was to a bar. So you understood it was about, a, about um, having a good time. So it's like, okay, so what's really very seriously, like, like what is that ceremony from the front door to where you're seeing, how do you drive people through the office into a meeting room? We had a big central library in the New York office and, and in all of our offices sort of had that idea of like theater as you come through the space for a client. And so, and also just for us, like I also wanted the office to feel like a, a beautiful place to come to because we ultimately spent more time there than we did at home than we did with our boyfriends or girlfriends or husbands and wives. So lots of fresh flowers, lots of candles, lots of dogs, lots of music. And you felt that electricity when you walked in. So I was always like super, 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 super obsessed with sort of how the spaces all felt spatially. And so I guess that was one tenant of working there. It's interesting that we had this conversation a couple of weeks ago because now that no one's going to an office, you're also just like, okay, how do we as a team of people make the Zoom experience of us feel different to someone else. Create a culture around that. Yeah, and as it's funny, as things have started to move so much faster in the age of Google Docs, where you're creating so quickly and everyone's collaborating so quickly, where you can't control a document necessarily, and 10 people are working into one presentation. It's interesting to me that it, that degree of theater is dissolved. And so how do you make that, aside from just doing great work, how do mm-hmm. you imbue the work you're doing with some degree of, of secret sauce and, and theater? It's something we've been talking about a great deal. Yeah, I'm sure it's a challenging moment to be originating ideas that feel that theatrical when we can't be in the same room sharing them together. Yeah, it's also like, it's interesting. Now having had a, a, an agency for this long, you also realize that so many people work in so many different places and there's so many amazing creative directors and art directors who just sort of leapfrogged around four or five people we always pitch against. And so you really understand that uh, it's not just good people that differentiate you. It's also sort of how they dance together. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, really hyper-focused on that in the last couple of years as I've seen that happen. Well, speaking of places, can we go sort of one by one through a history of your properties chronologically because each has an incredible mythology around it so the the first office was new york yeah and then did you have another office first or was mermaid ranch next we had we opened office in in hong kong which was a wild adventure i love that city i love that city too so much there's so much electricity I almost moved there uh we were there for this department store called lane crawford which mm-hmm. 
is so beautiful and had this moment, gosh, I don't know, 12 years ago, maybe something like that, where they were doing a complete overhaul and they really wanted to become the best, the, the best, most interesting retailer in, in all of, not just Asia, but I think in the world at that point, they were just doing so well. So I went to Hong Kong to pitch the account and Bonnie, who was, uh, Bonnie Brooks, who's now at the Bay in Canada, I think it was, she was then running things and she's like, you know, she said something like, Richard, you're like, you're so interesting and you are, I know you really want this and we would, we'd love to give you our work, but we could never do that unless you have an office here. So, you know, thank you for coming. And that afternoon I went out and I found an office and I signed the lease and I went no back. No way. Hey, we have an office here now. Give me the job. And so... We got the job and it was so much fun. And so anyway, Hong Kong came next. And then back to the discussion around just like keeping a team and, and, and dancing together. I noticed that everyone was working very long hours in New York. They were working weekends. And I was like, well, we should, we should have a place that makes that feel more exciting. So we got a house in Montauk with a big garden. And that was the Chandelier Surf Shack where people came on the weekends and they worked. And we had really wonderful summers there as a group of people working. We then did the Chandelier Ski Lodge, which was the winter after that. And really those, those two were just like back to world building, just like great opportunities to just like art direct a world that we love. You know, the Ski Lodge was like a Pendleton explosion. And uh, <laughs> but we just like dipped into these, for me, a guilty pleasure of dipping into just design genres and learning about it and mm-hmm. sort of stuff. And then Mermaid Ranch came along, which was uh, the one you mentioned, which was up in East Hampton and just a beautiful place it was lovely on the water and that's when we really got serious about that sort of stuff and we introduced an artist in residence program there and really started to activate our spaces a lot more than in New York the office started to get activated with a lot of salons and talks and started to understand that we had to start bringing culture in and um, and and wanted to just hungry to meet new people which was such a joy Um, and then Los Angeles after that and the interesting part about Los Angeles is we opened a bookshop the office is a bookstore because Los Angeles doesn't have any good bookstores or, or, or not. That's not true. It has maybe two. So, you know, the city that has is the birthplace of Maple Leaf has so few places to like, you know, get excited about that. So yeah. wanted to bring all this photography and art and design books to LA. But the interesting thing happened when we were doing that, which was such an eye opener for me was here we are in a, very up and coming neighborhood in Los Angeles. We're not in Hollywood. We're, we're not in a fancy part of town with this incredible bookstore and just people coming in from the street, lots of people coming in from the street, just like opening up our arms to the streets. And in New York, it's the opposite energy. We're in a penthouse. Mm. We're above everyone. We're up in the sky. Mm-hmm. And I really started to think that New York had to change and that we all had to change as well. Cause I felt like the idea of having that big office in the sky had had its day mm-hmm. and of course like it has now had its day it's played out all those people who had those big offices have started to leave them so as we know so so super interesting how things can can evolve and I just it's nice to listen to that yeah well I'd imagine when you're young and you're dreaming of having the glass tower of when course. you finally get it then you're kind of like okay well it can start getting a bit elitist and then where are you getting your ideas from 100 percent. yeah yeah exactly it's exactly that so that was Al Bureau. And was that around the same time that you were looking for a home in LA? I found my home first. I was on a shoot and my parents, as you know, farmers, they're beekeepers and someone, and I am as well. And some, uh, has a, I've always been a beekeeper and someone 
on the shoot said, oh, you, you know, I need to, I'd like to give bees to this man that lives on my street. Could you help me? And I said, yes, who's the guy? He's like, oh, he's, he's in his old age. He's like 94. He has a seven acre property. In LA. In LA, in the middle of Los Angeles. And it's That's all overgrown. It's crazy, crazy place. And he never comes up. And he's a massive hoarder. <laughs> so I, I went over and. He just needs some bees. He just needs some bees. His partner of 65 years had died. Mm. And so really just came over just as a favor met this old man who I loved and then kind of fell in love with the garden really just like was like oh my god and I hate Los Angeles at the time I didn't still don't know how to drive and I didn't never imagined living in Los Angeles and but loved this guy and then we we you know every time I came back to film in Los Angeles I would come to the garden I'd walk around the garden and I would um, look at the bees and a long time went by and finally one day I said John you're so old like you're in your 90s you can can't get up the stairs like and there's you a lot of stairs. To restore it. And he's like, why don't you restore it? And I was like, oh, no, I hate it here. I can, and I, I could never afford it. I own my own business. And he said, well, how much could you afford? And I kind of gave him a little number. And he's like, okay, I'll sell it to you for that much if you promise to restore it. And you promise to take care of it. And so I kept my word. So just as, again, kind of a wild adventure. And then I sort of knew, like, okay, i got to get out of New York. I've been there long enough. It's got a shelf life. And I've 100% hit it. And so I was so excited to come to LA. And then we built the office when I moved and the bookshop. Yeah. Has the old owner seen what you've done with the house? Uh, not, not in person. He moved to Palm Springs where I believe he still lives. He, um, he, I, I kind of think maybe it wasn't a good thing to invite him back. He had lived his whole life here. Mm. He had deeply about it and I restored it and everything but um and, and spent you know we planted 600 fruit trees and like we've really done some work here but I also think I would feel strange about going to see what someone did to my old home so and, and the same is true I yeah. think so out of respect no but um I think you'd be happy yeah what was the design process like for that well the house it's just it's actually it's not a huge house but it's a little Spanish house and I was working on a project and I met Studio Co out of Paris. They had worked on the Chilton Firehouse in London. Mm -hmm. That's how we met. And uh, the house used to be a, a, a gay porn studio, coincidentally. And so I had said to them in conversation, I think I just bought this crazy house in Los Angeles and it used to be a porn studio. And their eyes kind of lit up and they're like, France has this love affair with Los Angeles. So like, oh my God, a big garden in Los Angeles and, and nudity. And so they got very excited and, and we worked with them and I, I spent years just like working with them. It's so interesting. They're the only, it's the only time I ever had to work across the table from another, let's call it creative director, if you will. Mm. And I would send them, I'm sure I was a nightmare client. I sent them daily dozens and dozens of photos. I'd think of an idea and I'd text them. It went on for years and years and years. And they made me promise they I wouldn't introduce anything into the house, not even a teaspoon that they didn't approve. So we had this oh like back gosh. years and years and years. And I hope it doesn't sound pretentious. It's not intended to be. It literally was really just like a creative. It was a game of like a wild creative fun. And in a different way, you know, like that Walt Disney quality that we have in Los Angeles of world building. And we traveled to Africa and to Japan and to Morocco and obviously around France. We traveled together and looked at things and it was a joy the one of the most joyful experiences in my life was working with these two wildly creative architects and learning a lot about how to treat clients actually mm. I thought I knew how to do it having run a company for so long but they taught me so much by looking at the way they worked that I, I'm so grateful for it really changed the way I worked um, after working with them which was 
which is great. I love that even the uh, the blue paint I'm looking at on the wall behind you, it wasn't like you took a Pantone color to a Home Depot. You went to like Yves Saint Laurent's uh, Jardin Majorelle in Morocco yeah. and like bought the paint. We bought it from the gift shop. I bought it back in a suitcase. Yeah. And painted the wall behind me. Well, they're geniuses for selling that at the gift shop. That's so yeah. smart. Why? And it's such a wild indulgence to buy paint at the gift shop and bring it back. In Morocco. <laughs> But what a joy also, like the other thing I also realized, you know, I, I, my parents, uh, remember, let's go back to the beginning of this. And I said, like, we were working to save my parents' farm. We didn't save it. We lost it in the end. My parents lost their farm. They lost their money. And I never forgot how deeply traumatic that was for my mom and dad losing their, their farm and, and their home. And you know, also always thinking how important that was. And then, but also never having it, you know, living out of a suitcase, running, moving from country to country and, you know, getting to New York again and being broke and living in like an apartment with like 12 people and all that sort of stuff that you do. So really like it took 20 years before I finally was able to, you know, make a home. And now I love it so much. I'll never sell it. I'll never move. I'll never do it again. But I really understand, really understand now the importance of home for someone mm having not had it for a long time. And, and now that I do, you know, guarding it really with my life. And then also just like homes that have meaning, you know, and that yeah. have, a, have a soul. Because home, and I, I, I think I said this to you once before, in New York, home was the office for me. I right. worked every weekend. I worked every night. I was there till I was the first one and I was the last one to leave. And I don't think I saw anywhere in the world more than the four walls of that office. And, uh, and so it's, it's exciting now not to see that office, actually. Definitely did my time there. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. After growing up on a farm, did it feel a bit like a return to a more balanced relationship with the natural world too? Yeah, 100%. And I realize how important that is now to be grounded yeah. and to, to really lean into that. Yeah, you lose that in New York, obviously. Um, so it's great. It's such a gift. For sure. And even in, in your campaign work, I feel like nature does color so much better than we do. Like I saw this hummingbird this summer with like a fuchsia collar and iridescent electric green on its body. And I was like, what? How are you pulling that off? But I feel like there's so much inspiration to be found in nature that we miss. We're doing actually so funny you say that we're doing a a project right now and I said to the team like the hummingbird is the inspiration for that the mating dance that they do is so beautiful and the color you're talking about is the male hummingbird sort of seducing using his colors to seduce his his mate and uh there's there's endless boundless inspiration from nature which it's, it's far more creative than anything we could do on a computer oh yeah. I love that I love that I'm so excited to see what you do with that Tell me about these beautiful produce boxes that were bringing people so much joy through the beginning of lockdown all the way up until now. It's such a wild adventure. We have a new business. I have a new business in addition to the old business. <laughs> you know, I'd been saying for so long in New York that I wanted to do a, a gardening brand. I had this dream of selling my agency and starting something. It's kind of the dream everyone has. And anyway, COVID happened. We lost all of our work at the agency, like really overnight. Most of our clients at the time, you know, a year ago, it's only a year ago, it's so wild, were fashion and travel. And we we just took an absolute swan dive. And so, so there was a couple of things happening at once. One was like, oh my God, what are we going to get all these people to work on? How do we keep them paid? But also how do we just keep them excited and motivated in a time that was very confusing for everyone? And then my bookstore obviously also closed eventually. It's still open, but closed uh, at the time because all the shops in LA closed. And then I had a friend who is a farmer and she said, oh my God, I'm going to lose my farm. And obviously that means the world to me because I know what it's like to lose a farm. She's like, oh, my, oh, my work is tied to restaurants. And I was like, no, no, no. I know how to sell things. Bring your vegetables and we'll sell them. And so I think I, I shared with you once before, I think she thought we could sell a dozen vegetable boxes. But that first Friday of the COVID shutdown, we sold 400 and we sold 800 the next Friday. And this Friday, we'll have 35 trucks delivering vegetables all across Los Angeles and from dozens of other people now, you know, flower farm and a mushroom farm and an apricot farm and a citrus farm, different people just coming into that network. And it's so wild. It's so wild that it just sort of happened at the time that it did. And how lucky was I that I have this you know, wonderful team of colleagues who could pivot. And I'm you know, like, oh yeah, I know you were you were doing Photoshop production, but now you're in charge of stone fruit. And <laughs> so 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 exciting. And then I think the other thing that was really thrilling was we got to make stuff during COVID that I mean so many people must have felt like they were treading water, but we were like, mm. if we're gonna do a vegetable box, what's the most exciting one we can do? If we're gonna make tissue paper to wrap the vegetables, what is it gonna look like? If we're gonna do a website, what should it be? If we're gonna photograph it, let's get a fashion photographer to photograph potatoes. You know, how are we gonna do this? And I've always said to see nature in a different way, you need to show it in a different way. Mm. So to give it to give this industry that's not design driven some attention from people who are was such a wonderful adventure to see it with new eyes, if you will. For sure. 
yeah, really, it was amazing. And then, and then my financial mind kind of kicked in. I was like, okay, almost all this money, almost every cent is going back to the farms. How are we going to sustain this? So we started selling products that were from the garden, but not fresh produce. So honey or olive oil, and then many, many, many other products, body products and candles and things like that, with the hope that if someone's collecting a box of vegetables, they might grab a bottle of olive oil or something as well. So to give you an idea of how that's done in nine months, we <laughs> said with the National Forest Foundation, we will plant one tree for every product we sold. And wow. I believe we are about to plant 40,000 trees, give or take. So we've, we did something really wonderful. I'm really proud of everyone. And, and I really feel like deep in my soul that this is a project that I have loved. You know, I also like, like many of us, I got to think about the food I eat, the music I listen to, the books I read, I got to really stop and think about what being happy feels like mm-hmm. because the world slowed down. And I would never, ever have had that opportunity if we were still racing at the speed that we were beforehand. So it was, it's been wild. I'm so grateful for the last year. It's been the most joyful year I've ever had. I am too. I feel like we're just starting to see all the fruits of our labor too for the friends of mine who didn't cling to the old world like you were saying and and latch themselves to something that was that was very quickly evaporating I feel like it's been such an incredible time of growth yeah I mean the other interesting thing that I think I shared this when we spoke previously my greatest fear was losing that office in New York and I was so driven by it I was always like I remember when I first got to New York and I was like oh I want to have a big fancy office like Trey Laird and I want to do this and we finally got an office and I was like oh my god it would be so humiliating if I ever had to lose this. And I think that's the thing that kept me working and kept me pitching and kept me going. And the couple of times the agency has not done well, like during the financial crisis in a way, in that sort of time when it was looking really precarious for us, that thing that just like made me sick to my stomach that we would lose that office. So anyway, then of course, we get into COVID. We've lost every client. Our landlord is not giving us a break they're still making us pay rent but yet we're not able to go into the building and the managing director Eileen who's amazing was like Rich we need to give up the office like we're all working from home for the next six months at least we're not getting any break from it we need to move out and I was so upset and I maybe a little bit of muscle memory from like my parents losing their home I don't know Mm -hmm. just like this idea of that was so hard for me that I got on a plane I went back to New York and there was stuff everywhere. There's all the bookshelves, all the books in the library were on the floor. Like there was stuff everywhere. And I walked in and there was a book on the receptionist desk. I think it was, it sounds a little cheesy maybe. I think it was like an Oprah quote book or something like that. Anyway, I opened it up to the first page. And the first page that I saw said, sometimes you need to burn down the barn to see the moon. And I thought, okay, great. That's our spirit now. We're going to burn down the barn. And so we packed up the office and just thought I was in there. I was just like, oh my God, I have spent more time here than anywhere in the world. And I know every crook and cranny. I know the way the, the, the air conditioner hums. I know the smell of every corner. I was like, it's time to go. We're done. We've done now. And I was so, it was, it was wonderful. It was so liberating leaving. And I'm so, I'm so grateful for the time in that space. And now onwards and upwards. And so we're looking for a new home in New York now with uh, the team that's now back at work and things are coming. So it's funny, things break apart and then you get to rebuild them, which is exciting. Yeah, it allows for real creation again. Yeah. In the way you want it to be. Also, like realized, I realized how tethered we were to having to take really big jobs to pay this giant overhead of this huge office. And then when we didn't have that overhead, 
we were able to work with people we really loved who we might not have been able to before because they wouldn't be able to pay us mm-hmm. the money that we needed. And so what happened in the last nine months at the agency was just this wild, beautiful collection of work, the best work we've ever done in the last, you know, in the last decade, unquestionably, for people who are really polite and nice and really want beauty. They want wonder and beauty now. And it's so nice that we can say yes to them, you know. I think I, I'd shared, sorry, I'm, I'm just talking, 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 but I'd shared to you, um, do you remember last week I said that we did a pitch for a large, should I share that story? Yes, please do. I shouldn't say who. A very <laughs> large company that makes computers and things like that. Um, <laughs> we all know they asked us to pitch a job. So we did, and we were so excited because it's one of those brands you always dream of working for. But it was the first time we'd been in one of those giant pitches that goes on for weeks that costs you tens of thousands of dollars to do the pitch for. And we used to do those every, you know, every two weeks and not even blink. And now mm-hmm. it was different. It was like, okay, it's a lot of money again and we're back in it. And so we did the presentation. It felt nice to be back in the saddle, like doing that for a really, really big brand again. And then an assistant of an assistant basically emailed the next day and said, thanks, we went with someone else. It was sort of one line email. And that previously would never have phased me. You know, like you that's the name of the game. Like you pitch a job, sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. But this time around, I was like, fuck you. Like we all worked so hard in the middle of a pandemic the CMO should have picked up the phone and called me and said, thank you for your time, but uh, we're going to go with a different agency. And so I was, I just was, I, I came home so angry and thought this is exactly what I don't like about the industry that we have worked in for two decades. So, and, and talked to the team about it the next day. And I was like, yeah, we really like, we've kind of landed in a new sort of headspace and now we need to respect that and, uh, and work for people who also share that value, you know? of being decent and kind to each other. I've thought about that so many times in the past year. Even if you're on a train that is like really fun and it's going really well, whatever the point of inception was, whenever you started building that, there's a tie to that value system. And whether that's like shaking off rejection that comes, that's not super polite and moving on with it, you kind of get into that constant headspace for years, for decades. And that is, you know, like we were talking about, that's the great thing about starting something from scratch is you get to really make sure that what you're building aligns with where you're at now, which might be 20 years down your personal journey. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the wonderful thing, right? It's the great thing about trying things and starting things, you know. For sure. And you got off Instagram. I got off Instagram. (laughs) I'm on now, but I got off Instagram. I feel like that's the dream. That's like when you know you've made it is when you can burn it all to the ground on that front. I mean, it was funny because I never had a personal Instagram. My Instagram was, I was always sort of tethered to the businesses. And Mm -hmm. so I just like untacked myself and got off it. Someone had said, and it's so true, like the reason they put blinkers on race horses because they they don't need to see the horses next to them. And there's that other expression about, you know, a flower that grows doesn't need to look side by side to see another flower. It just blooms up to the sun on its own. And those bumper stickers are all so 100% true. And so really just like stopped looking side to side, stopped Mm -hmm. comparing myself to other people and other businesses and all that sort of stuff. And then the wind started just to hit the sails of, being content and being happy and, and building stuff, which I, I feel like we're, I'm 100% still in that zone, which is nice. I love that the uh, the body products that you're creating, I think, stemmed from a desire to have the runoff from your bathing cathedral 
be able to be a part of like the irrigation system in your garden and wanting that to be as pure as possible. What what was that process like? It was two things. It was it was that we recycle the water here. So long before we were selling products, we were making products that were just good for the garden and good for the plants. And then I'd gone through a breakup and my therapist had said in Los Angeles, so LA had said, oh, you have to get on antidepressants or something like that. And I was like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. And then I came home and someone had told me about a study in Japan about sage being ingested correctly or absorbing sage into your body. Mm -hmm. Um, sort of brings up your serotonin levels and things like that so I started doing a lot of work just around like oh if that's true like what is that terrible shampoo I'm using what's in that and how what am I absorbing and what chemicals are in there and just really getting tighter around plant medicine and also just like just environmental impact of um, the products we use every day so that really like for my own personal journey just was like oh I can probably do better on myself by making this stuff here. So we started doing that. And that spawned all the products we've got now, actually. And also, we uh, this is when the agency was still in full swing before before the pandemic. And I was traveling a lot to Hong Kong still. And, and Jeff, who's our gardener here, he said he was making tinctures. And I didn't even know what a tincture was. And he was like, no, take this, for, put this under your tongue for jet lag when you get to Hong Kong. And I thought it was so witchy and so silly. And, but I took it and it was great. And I it's like, oh, there's something in this. And it's it's a great idea. You know, now that's exactly what we're selling. And we're, we're back this year. We're launching supplements based on that, some of that same thinking. So it's just funny how that stuff has informed all the stuff we're doing now. It's so interesting. Absolutely. Well, if I ever have the opportunity to have jet lag again, which I'm having a weird, <laughs> I'm weirdly missing it now that we're talking. Oh my God, wouldn't that be nice? What a luxury. <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely need those. I used to be jet lagged just about every week, but... How things have changed. Yeah. You've previously talked about the idea of grounding projects in a fantastical story, mm. which almost sounds antithetical, but it's such a cool way of looking at creating a place that, you know, maybe is new, but feels like it has history in its walls. Yeah. It was a really big point of, of departure for us at the beginning of a project. There's always been sort of grounding it in a make-believe story. Actually, the first person ever told me this was, uh, this started when I met years ago when I met Roman, who's the founder of Commune Design. Mm. I was asking him about how they designed the Ace um, Hotel in Los Angeles. We were interviewing architects for a project. We were lead agency for a project and we were being asked to find the architect for it. And so we met a number of the architects and Many of them were like, oh, you know, we've done this building, we've done that building, and it's this. It was very rational. Mm -hmm. And we met Roman, and he said, oh, well, the architect Schindler had an affair with, um, I can't remember who, um, some Hollywood actress. And, and he was like crazy and brutalist, and she was this wild, eccentric woman, and they had this wild love child called Ace. And... So he started to explain the hotel through the story of this love child. It was all make-believe and it was so fantastical and we were on the edge of our seats. And so I remember going back to the office and saying, this is the place we need to start now. And so not long after that, we did a project in Japan where we were doing this sort of redevelopment of this, this large section of the city. And we wanted it to be this wild sort of mismatch of ideas and quite loud. And I had read in the newspaper about this this man in Japan who died at his desk and his colleagues didn't know he was dead for two days or something. He just died. And so I was like, well, okay, what if he didn't die? What if he 
just like went absolutely crazy all of a sudden and turned this whole office upside down. What if he painted all the walls and went outside and painted the buildings? And what if he just wrecked everything and this like weird meltdown becomes something creative and wonderful. So that became the first time we did that. And we made a move. And then we started making movies of these things and we would, we'd come up with a story, we'd make a movie around it. And that's normally how we would start a project. And uh, it became uh, an amazing tool for all of us. It's such a nice way to see the world. Again, that sort of Walt Disney quality of make-believe, which is, is so, so much nicer than just trying to find a, a rational thread between different ideas. Yeah. For sure. I'd imagine it does put quite a bit of pressure on you to constantly be coming up with ideas. Oh, it's so much fun. And you've, you've like climbed Everest and done all of this proper exploring. So I'd imagine that being on the edge of... You've really, really done your research. <laughs> That's like the most fun part of this for me is that I really get to learn about all these fascinating people like yourself. But you've done all this proper exploring. So I'd imagine that being at the edge of the regular human experience is really helpful for inspiration. I guess so. I mean, that, that those trips I've taken, the Everest one, and then I, I walked to the North Pole and the South Pole, and, and they were really because I felt like at the time I was, I needed to sort of step outside my comfort zone. Someone had said, um, I wish I could remember now who it was, in old maps, in sailing maps, the, the edge of the map used to say, uh, here there are dragons or something like that. Like the edge of the map was where the dragons were. And that was a part to be terrified of. And actually, no, that's the part you should lean into and race after those dragons. And so, because the earth is, is not flat. And so I, really get very, I got very, very excited about that. And I really also just felt like maybe this was about living in New York for so long. I also felt like I started to feel like I maybe kind of felt like I, I maybe was suffering from feeling like I knew everything about everything. Mm. And certainly at the office, I would see everyone on Instagram or on Pinterest or wherever, just like pulling like superficial knowledge of lots of stuff, but not actually experiencing it. So I, I actually sort of went through this period where I just really wanted to like experience the, you know, the, the toughest things I could and just like smell it and chase it and run after it. And it was wonderful. I had such a good time. It was great. And also, like, you know, when you're in minus 30 and you are freezing, you really understand how important it is to have a warm sleeping bag and how, like, you know, you, you need to experience stuff to be able to sell stuff, too. So that was it was nice. It was so good. It was such an amazing. Those were such joyful times. So great. I always joke that. I fall somewhere between probably like stoicism and hedonism. What do you feel like is your guiding philosophy to how you you approach life? Because you're doing something now that's so different from the track, seemingly that you were maybe on five years ago, and you've you've made such an incredible leap. What do you feel like is the philosophy that kind of guided you between those worlds? Oh, I don't know um, whether there was a philosophy. I mean, I'm really big fan of not standing still mm. and I think you know also way back to the beginning you know like I really just was shaking hands and kissing babies all the way through my 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 years of working in London and moving to Italy and that sort of stuff and it was just like constantly about putting one foot in front of another and just like experiencing stuff I think I'm so I'm super 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 curious I think that's the only thing I I sometimes have a really heavy heart for people who get like it's not so much that I think I'm smart. I just think I like to move and keep moving. And so I think I can have people who are second guessing themselves or get nervous or get self-conscious because it's not that I'm smart or necessarily more talented than anyone else. But I think I'd, I'd like to keep moving, which I think is like so important. 
but obviously everyone's different, but that's for me what it is. Awesome. What are you most excited about with the future for Flamingo Estate and Chandelier, all of it? Hmm. Well, for Flamingo, I am, I think after spending my whole life creating stories for brands I might not necessarily believe in or taking a, you know, a mass retailer and trying to give them some sparkle. I think for me, it's, it feels in my soul so nice to think about something that I really love, you know, think about cooking a meal, thinking about having a bath, thinking about, I, I, I think pleasure is a human right. And we all work so hard that we get disconnected from that. And so to bring people back to that, to bring myself back to that is, is, is so joyful. Mm -hmm. So that I really am so excited about. I kind of wake up and I'm just so happy that I get to, this is going to sound terrible, but I sort of get to monetize my garden. You know, I get to like, I get to introduce people into it. So for me, that's the nicest thing. I also care deeply about the environment and about nature. And so hopefully we can also make some strides there as well um, with what we're doing here. And, you know, slowly, slowly turn that, or maybe not so slowly sort of turn that corner into really responsible manufacturing and, and responsible consumerism, not just for our brand, but for all the others as well. It's interesting when you look at, I've been doing, as you know, I've been, oh my goodness, in these discussions with VC companies and finance people about the next stage of the brand. And it's um, something I've never done before. And putting these documents together and interesting that I've been looking at the growth in self-care. It's interesting that, you know, the organic movement's going to double the uh, value of the aromatherapy market's going to double. But most interesting, in the last one year, the antidepressant market doubled. That it jumped from $14 billion to $28 billion. Wow. And so what that says is a couple of things. It says that people are obviously feeling really anxious. People are also seeking treatment for anxiety. And there's sort of this search inward. I'm really excited about how we can address that with nature. Yeah. Super excited about psilocybin and about microdosing and about um, plant medicine and creating alternative solutions. A hundred percent. And I and, and we're seeing that start to happen and we're seeing the growth of that stuff. There's been a threefold increase in any in online searches for that sort of stuff this year. Like people are starting to to pay attention, much like I did when Jeff gave me a tincture for jet lag. Like really like people are starting to think about it. And so that makes me really excited about the future there. Really, I'm really, I, I'm so, so, so enthusiastic about it. Well, I'm so excited that your attention is on building things from the ground up because with the amount of creativity you've brought to others' projects, it's really exciting. I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes out of this. Thank you. That's so generous of you. That's so lovely. And um, you will forever have an endless free supply of hand wash, shampoo, <laughs> olive oil, honey, whatever you want. Do you ship to Canada? <laughs> yeah, yeah, forever, worldwide. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. And that beautiful people concludes this episode of the Inspirati. I hope you picked up some inspiration to take into your day. Please rate, review, subscribe, and leave a comment if you're enjoying these conversations. You can follow the Inspirati on Instagram or find me at alex.merrill. Stay inspired and keep creating. The world needs it more than ever.
to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today, we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.